Miracy. You might not like these things about your father, but when you put up walls, deliberate walls to protect yourself, they also keep yourself locked in. I'm Esco Wilson, and this is the Self-Awakened Lifestyle. I'm a lifestyle designer and performance coach. I've helped hundreds of professionals learn how to tap into the power of their innate potential and thrive on a whole new level. I've seen lives change. I've seen my own life change, and I want to help more people. That's what this podcast is all about, bringing my own experience together with scientific principles and holistic practices to help listeners enhance their personal and professional performance. In each episode, I guide my guests through a difficult issue or challenge, and through the mind-body-spirit connection, we will expand what is possible. So this story is feeding off the theme of subtle trauma that can be present not only in our physical body, not only in our emotions and thoughts, but in all the little whispering voices around us, all the little whispering voices in our lineage. And this story is in honor of my uncle. His name is William Julius Wilson, my father's oldest brother. This man is very accomplished. He has close to like 26 honorary PhDs. He just retired from as a Harvard professor in the social policy department. And in the late 80s, he wrote a book called The Truly Disadvantaged. And it talks about essentially how growing up poor with a lack of network, a lack of know-how in a system that's not gonna provide proper housing, policing, education, connection, there is systemic disadvantage, truly truly being disadvantaged. And in communities like the one I grew up in, in Harlem, New York, in the 80s, with the crack epidemic, truly disadvantaged. There are heroes. And in a lot of ways, those heroes can be villains in somebody else's story. And a lot of the heroes that I grew up watching were drug dealers. They made their way through that madness, truly disadvantaged. But wow, look at them very successful. It stimulated me. First with fear. I was fearful of the community all around me, the environment all around me. I was fearful of people who engaged in those behaviors. This is me as an adolescent, so 12, 13 years old, very scared. And as a way to overcome that fear, that idea that, Esco, you can't survive in this neighborhood. You can't survive in this environment. I conditioned my mind. I can, I followed my role models. I went through the pain that was necessary to be brave enough to engage in that behavior of drug dealing. And in a lot of ways, it's seen as a process of development. It's seen as a process towards success, but it's just enhancing what it means to be truly disadvantaged. And as I moved forward, going through the discipline of changing my mindset, changing my network so that I can participate 
in what I thought was a successful endeavor or a successful approach to surviving in the environments that was around me, I was just actually perpetuating a truly broken system. Not only my uncle, but every single member of my family showered me with love. I never felt judged, ever. If anything, I judged myself for not recognizing the system that I had that was supporting me, which was my family, a beautiful, loving family that in my worst moment, with unconditional love, gave me the support that I needed to see a completely different path. So it's a beautiful thing to make the mistakes that I've made, but at the same time have the best medicine that somebody like myself could have, and that's the unconditional love of legacy. Unconditional love from legacy. Grandmother, cousins, everybody. I do believe that they all love me, and they love all that I've ever been, and they love all that I will ever be. And that belief expands my self-concept to the point where I can overcome anything. So my guest today is Bonnie, and she embodies unconditional love in very powerful ways, almost to the point of overwhelming herself many times. And I wanted to give her an opportunity to start to send unconditional love to the one person that has impacted her life the most. And in doing so, she'll recognize that unconditional love is infinitely abundant and can never run out. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. We were talking right before the show, and we were talking about a certain like glow on my skin. And I was confessing that I purposely go through a set of steps, procedures, rituals to not necessarily for the glow on my skin, but for a certain resonance in every cell in my body so I can radiate out a certain intention. And I'm bringing this up because I basically laid in ice cold water and I practiced silence inside the ice bath. How do you practice silence? So I practice silence, I mean, a lot of it throughout my life, I think. As a child to young adult, using silence as a healing tool, as a calming tool, as a shield of protection against, you know, noise and toxic elements. Now I practice silence after working with you for the last over a year through meditating, quieting, more focusing on just consciously being silent as opposed to just sitting in silence. I love it. So one way is a way to disconnect from outside influences. And then when you're mindful, you're conscious, you're in practice with silence present, that's an opportunity to connect to something deep inside. You call it your soul. Talk to me about intentions. So you have your soul and then you have parts of who you are that need to be protected. Okay. So the parts of you that need to be protected, they have an intention. They have a desire. They have a goal. Those parts of you, what's their, what's their intention? What do they want to manifest? So they, they want to be safe. So my human life, I feel was very chaotic from birth and a lot of trauma and toxicity 
on a cultural level, the way it was interpreted, and on a parental level. And so I felt very unsafe my entire childhood, actually into young adulthood. So my silence that I created, shutting myself off from elements, was to protect myself in a survival mode. So just shutting out anything. When you when you raise in a toxic environment, uh, you don't have those grounding elements of safety. So if I could be silent and not have everything come to me when I could control that, the way I controlled it as a child was to not speak. I was the middle child of five, and I just stayed under the radar. <laughs> Did not want any kind of attention in my household. I have a very toxic father who is narcissistic, definitely, but is also someone who's been very damaged, who himself is probably a survivor of a lot. So I stayed quiet until I could get out of my home. (laughs) And then I had to heal myself (laughs) from the toxic environment that I spent those 20 years in. Okay. And the parts of you that are more connected to your soul, what's their intention? What do they want to manifest? So those parts of me that I've had since I came into this world is rooted in love. Everything is rooted in love for me. I lost my brother tragically 12 years ago. And all I felt in that extreme loss was extreme love. Um, So to me, it was like he was here and he left this world and everything around his departure was love and agony of the loss of his physical self. And to me, everything is about kindness and love and compassion. Um, and I think that's what we're all rooted in and what we all want, to be heard, to be seen, to be understood, and to be kind. Wow. I love that. So the North Star for at least our soulful self or those aspects of our identity is that vibration of love, that frequency of love. So if love is not present, at least we need safety. This is what I'm hearing. And let's start with that foundation. And from that foundation, there's something that can be built or something can emerge. Talk to me about your intentions around creating safety so that love can emerge in your life presently. So, you know, creating safety was in finally healing myself and not focusing outward on healing or trying to help everyone else. So I let go of the responsibility of trying to save people in my family or in my life that just didn't need my safety, my love, my my help, because they just were doing what they need to do for themselves. So all this energy was just keeping me stuck and unhappy. So the way I created safety was to start working with you which honestly, I came to you to work out physically to lose weight. I lost my mother three, four years ago. I was her caretaker. She had a stroke. I mean, we all rallied around her, but I was there, you know, taking her to appointments and therapies and helping her take her first bath and making sure I was there in the mornings for her and getting whatever she needed. She had AIDS around the clock, but I was her daughter and I wanted to do that for her. And my body broke down. So I came to you to physically get myself back in shape. And it opened the door to all this healing that I sought out for myself. So working with you, we hadn't seen each other in a very long time. I didn't know how your evolution was. And I also didn't ask a lot of questions. I just knew that I trusted you. 
and then I was going to walk in. And intuitively, this is where my intuition is. This was going to be what I needed right now. Um, and, you know, we connected when my brother passed, you know, I was working out with you at the gym. And that was the moment where you also came in and helped me when I was ready to give up. And you were like, nope, you're coming in every week. I'm going to come get you if you don't come in. Those are the connections in life that you can miss if you're not aware, if you're stuck in your misery and your self-pitying, and if you're stuck in your wounds and you're stuck in your pain, you'll miss those moments. So coming to you and starting with the, you know, meditation and the way you coach and, you know, it was uncomfortable to me because I like to take control. I like to dictate the narrative, but you got me writing again. So when you have somebody that you can identify as a soul agreement, so to speak, is what I believe we have with people who really touch you and help you propel and what you do, it got me unstuck in a lot of ways. So I was emerging out of this darkness, out of this life, creating safety, stop being a victim, starting to be a victor. I love that. You have this amazing mind that can capture many textures, many layers of thought, many stories and how they integrate together. So I'm going to take a step back and share with you what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing in my mind and what I'm embodying. Okay. There's a father, there's a brother, and safety from the father, connection to the brother. As you grew up, trauma. Talk to me about that trauma. There was very oppressive culture. There's still a range of marriages, systemic rape, basically. The women had to be virgin on their wedding night. And if they weren't a virgin, they were like killed or thrown out. You know, it's like you had to be a virgin. Your sheets were checked to make sure you were pure. So this is what I grew up with. Sex was bad. Love is bad. You don't choose who you want, but we're going to violate you <laughs> on your wedding night. There was abuse. There was abuse of, of children in my home on a physical and sexual level that was ignored. And the victims were made to be ashamed and silenced and caused more damage. There was this elitist boy thing that I believe was the demise of my brother. He was the youngest. He was the fifth. You know, he's the boy. And he was the king. As soon as he was born, he was the king after four girls. He was the boy. And my dad would say, let's refer to him as the king. And so since my dad was a narcissist, one day he loved him. He was the golden child. And one day he was nothing without him. And I believe this destroyed him in this life. Take a pause for a second, just so I can kind of settle in with what you're saying. So the first male child, your younger brother, the baby, gets all the attention from your father, who's the way he is, a narcissist in a culture that, describe the culture again, I'll allow you to put words to it. It's a male-oriented Muslim culture. Women, you know, are to be seen and provide and not think and, you know, archaically. It's not like that for everybody, but archaically, that's the way it, it is for the people I was raised with. Okay, cool. And you're saying your father loved your brother? One minute, and then one minute he did not love your brother? Or... Well, that's, that's the dynamic of a narcissist. You're always an extension of the persona. And a narcissist has extreme self-love and self-loathing for themselves. 
and as an extension of your child, they see that in you. You're never good enough or you're the best. It really goes back and forth because it's based on how they operate. Got it. So you, as the middle child, you have this, let's call it a skill, to mute the noise happening all around you and go into solitude and protect yourself. So talk to me about, so your brother, he's the youngest one. You're protecting yourself, your efforts to protect your brother. Talk to me about that. I didn't realize he needed protecting. I'm seven years older than him. I figured he was getting treated as the golden child. I didn't realize until later in life what it was doing to him. He's a beautiful soul with a big heart, loving. He has what I call the Elvis effect. It's just this charismatic, glowing personality that attracts people, that just people want to be around him. And just fighting, I think, the toxicity on a daily basis was really hard for him. And he used to say to me about my dad, you have to treat him like shit and knock him down for him to be decent. And then how does that make you feel? Wow. Yeah. It hurts to punch somebody back. Right. So when he passed, I was like, yeah, this is going to be the fallout of all this toxicity that had been going on in this family. I did not go around my dad for a decade at least. I did not. I kept my distance, which meant I wasn't included in things. It's very lonely to be a truth teller. When you see what the danger is and the darkness is, and you can see it so clearly, yet everybody's kind of wrapped up in it because they're confused because you love the people who are supposed to protect you, who you come into this world with. You love them. I feel like my intuition has been connected to divine love my whole life. So when I would see behaviors, I'd be like, that's wrong. And as a kid, I would be very outspoken and I would be called devil <laughs> in, Al- you know, in Albanian. I would be called Rech, Jarpin, Grays, Bumblebee, because I would like, I didn't care if it was wrong, I would tell you it was wrong. But there was a point that I got silenced that I knew I shouldn't. So I'd say around seven or eight, I learned how to not speak up. <laughs> it wasn't going to get me anywhere. I felt like it was getting more dangerous to be speak out. I felt threatened, like my life was in danger. I had recalled a memory and it was, I was in a relationship with someone my dad didn't approve of and he found out and he called me into his room and my mom was sitting there and he said, are you going to see this person anymore? And I said, yes. And I must've been 19, 20. He said, get down on your knees. I was telling somebody the story and I said, I was on my knees, but he didn't hit me. I don't know why I was on my knees. This is 28 years ago. And he started looking through the cabinets in his room. He had one of these old beds with cabinets around it. And he left the room and I said to my mom, what was he looking for? Like he was frantic. She's like, I hid his gun. I didn't even realize it until 28 years later, I was telling the story. I woke up in the middle of the night gasping because I realized why I was on my knees. Wow. Yeah, that's, we talk about trauma and repressed memories and how they emerge with a new meaning. It's like, oh, okay, wow, that's what that thought actually, that's what that experience was actually, you know? I'm so sorry to hear that. How'd your brother pass? He passed of an overdose. Huh. So he used drugs to quiet the noise. Now, that's, I mean, you know my history. I'm a former drug dealer, convicted, 
many times. You understand that? And just hearing your words, I don't know, it just brings tears to my eyes. It's so interesting. I, doing this project, this podcast project, it's so interesting how emotions are emerging for me. I've engaged in like self-mastery, I guess almost like a suppression of emotion, almost like a disassociation. And I guess this is what I'm learning from you. You're teaching me right now that I can be confrontational, I guess, to create my safety so I won't be vulnerable. And me opening up and embodying your story, which honestly, I don't really do too much. I don't necessarily just sit and embody people's story. I'll sit with empathy, but I don't allow it to go deep into like the bottom of my belly. I'm realizing that now. In the short term, self-mastery can often lead to a suppression of emotion. Somebody who is engaging in self-mastery and suppressing their emotions, they can often be very confrontational. They are not curious and they mute their emotions. I can easily find myself um, using a coaching style that knocks people into retreat mode. My clients in retreating, they are moving away from deeper levels of connection with me as equals. I sustain the hierarchy. I'm in self-mastery, I'm being confrontational, and I keep the hierarchy. Bonnie is teaching me that I'm building boundaries. I'm trying to mute the noise that's around me. The noise of having a truly embodied experience with my clients. The noise that makes me have to embody my own emotions. Considering that I've worked so hard to master these emotions for decades. So the critical question is, when does self-mastery become an avoidance of the deepest levels of connection? Connection where someone like myself can feel somebody else's legacy. So now I'm going to return to a very important moment for me where I allow myself to be very vulnerable during the podcast with the guests. And then that moment, that's when the guest actually becomes my teacher. So... I almost feel like apologizing for the situation with your brother. I almost feel like I contribute to that type of situation. I'm very, very sorry for families who have to go through that, where a child, a family member is abusing drugs. So I honor you for allowing me to kind of sit and go deeper into myself to discover parts of me that I guess I don't allow to be hurt. I don't give voice to. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And you talked about an intention around love and connection. So for me, that's me connecting with you. I feel more connected to you right in this moment than I've ever felt with you. And I'm not just saying that. I can feel it like deep inside, like, wow, this is the first time I'm actually able to really see and feel and understand what you're going through with your family and your upbringing, your relationship with your brother. Your mother, what's going on? Talk to me about your mother. Well, my mother passed four years ago. She had a stroke and she always feared having a stroke and not being able to take care of herself. And actually, I gave her a lot of shit my whole adult life about not being a better role model, of not rising up, if I wasn't going to come down to her level anymore. She would say, I'm your mom. I let my mom get away with stuff. I was like, no, I'm not living there. Elevate, elevate, elevate. And I finally saw her elevate when she had a stroke. She thought I never had more respect 
or love or admiration for her than seeing her fight for 14 months to live, to come back to everyone. And she was a very depressed person. She attempted suicide once and almost succeeded. Yeah. My brother found her and pulled her out and CPR and everything. Yeah. Can we just, just take a pause? So your brother found your mother? And he was angry at her. He was very resentful that he was the one who had to find her. Like, And he adored my mom. They had this magical relationship. How old was your brother? He was probably 19. And then he passed away when he was? When he was 30. He had gone to jail for 14 months for five DUIs. Right before he passed away, he was released in June, and he passed away in January. I just wanted to know that he was what he went through when he passed and I was in a dream state and with this one time one evening and I saw a figure at the end of my bed but they weren't facing me they were shrouded in white and I felt this heat of my feet so I knew someone was sitting at the bottom of my bed I didn't know who it was but I felt somewhat protected and I start panicking like I can't breathe and I'm half asleep trying to wake myself up. It's one of those dreams, if you've ever had, that you try to get yourself up. And I have my hand clenched on the frame of the radiator so hard that when I wake up, I have a deep red gash in my hand. And then it was silent. Just like that, it was silent and calm. And my whole body released. Let's sit in silence for a second. You had a connection to your brother, his passing, a dream where you're holding on to a radiator. And you're able to find silence. You're able to release in that situation. You're demonstrating a part of you that is able to help others settle into silence. You're demonstrating a part of you that is able to equalize things, purify things in other people's life, showing up as a healer for other people. Talk to me about the work that you do with people who are considered hoarders. Yeah. So I feel like we're guided if we listen, you know, and I truly believe that I'm being guided. And I was guided in my grief to work with people who have very similar experiences with trauma. And because I have walked in their shoes and understand it so intimately, I am able to give these people, these elders, end of life situations in a lot of cases, some comfort and knowing that you're seen, you're heard, and you're not judged. There's no shame in being the victim. There's no shame in pain. There's no shame in grief and loss. And it takes some people their entire lifetime, and they leave with it, and they carry it to the next life. So I think we're here. I feel, you know, as a healer, you're a healer. I feel that we're here to give comfort when we can, you know. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I was doing it with compassion and love and warmth and kindness. All the divine gifts that I carried from my childhood throughout my entire life to this point, those are the gifts that are important, I believe, for everyone, but that I hold first and foremost for myself. So you walk into somebody's home. That person has experienced all kinds of trauma in their life. They have a beautiful story that they could share about why their home looks the way it looks. So when you walk into somebody's home who's a hoarder, again, no shame, no judgment, what do you see? You walk into their home, 
What are you seeing? Tell me some of the cases that really are symbolic of trauma. So I walk in and they resist. And what I see is a lot of pain and chaos and sadness and overwhelmness and drowning and people blanketing themselves in whatever they can to huddle and hide and be silent. Not the good silent, not the silent that I'm saying connects to your inner self, but the silent that keeps the noise out. I apologize. Hold your thought. I just want to make sure, at least for me, that that initial silence where we just kind of sit and we're trying to find safety and we're trying to disassociate, let's not give it a value of good or bad. We're doing the best we can do. And if we have to build a fortress around us, whether we're seven years old or whether it's, you know, taking drugs or whether it's, you know, how your mother approached it, whatever it is, we're doing our best to create safety, to kind of mute things. Let's, let's use that model. No, it's absolutely valid. Words are important. I use words are important. They hold weight. It's the safety of silence. It's the cushion silence. It's the, I can't take any more silence. Like how many barriers can I build from something that will hurt me? Silence. And I come in and I help them realize that they don't need that. So when we look at this reinforcement model of exposing hidden traumas versus creating space for the co-creation of loving experiences, when we look at that dichotomy, we recognize that Bonnie, who would like to heal herself by demonstrating an unconditional loving presence with people who can truly benefit from it, in a lot of ways continues to hurt herself because she never gives that unconditional love to the person that has the most impact on her psyche. Same thing with her father. He grew up in a legacy, a lineage, a culture, a society, a religion. In his mind, he's the hero in that story. His upbringing caused a lot of scars, a lot of scar tissue in order for him to be the way that he is. And it toughened him up. And it probably muted his ability to go deep into the stories and emotions of those around him. He doesn't have time to waste embodying their stories. He has a job to do. He's the leader of the family. He's the leader of the religion and his family. And he wants to make sure that things get done a certain way. So if he looked at his situation through the eyes of his father or his great grandfather, he's winning. He's doing the best he can do. And things are really working well. He might see it as we're at the height of our lineage right now. We're in a new country. We're financially secure. We made it out. Like we're surviving. We're doing very, very well. And you mean to tell me I'm doing something wrong? Can't you see what I've overcome? Can't you see how far we've come? Trace back through the lineage and then look at where we're at now and tell me that I've done something wrong. That's what comes to mind when I think about Bonnie's father. I believe she has opportunities by not judging who he is or even his previous behaviors, but acknowledging that he has probably never felt a deeply rooted, unconditionally loving experience from somebody that's truly important to him. So we're on the show. I work with you. We work together. Hopefully I teach you things. You definitely teach me many, many things. And there's your father. 
I won't go as far as to say this is something that we have to do, because we don't have to do it, okay? And I invite you to take any approach that you feel is appropriate. But I invite you to see your father creating, in his own way, his boundaries, his what might be considered a hoarding ecosystem where things are just compiled around him based on his trauma, based on, you know, who he's brought up to be. And you walk up to your father in this frame. What do you say to him? I say, I know, and I've said, I know some very, very bad things have happened to you. And you don't need to tell me. And maybe you're not even admitting them to yourself, but it's not okay. I've said to him, it's not okay what happened to you. It's obvious something very, very bad happened to you and your siblings because there's something off about all of you. But it's not okay to hurt other people as well in the process. And that's why I have my boundaries. What else do you say to him? I say to him that he can be the best person in the world and he can also equally be the darkest, most destructive person in the world to us. Um, and it's his choice. It's how he wants to go out. Does he want to go out of this world saying, yeah, our dad was a monster and he just kept abusing us and not appreciating us until the last day of his life? Or does he want to say, yeah, he was a monster, but he turned it around. Okay. Okay. Again, we don't have to, but I'm seeing an opportunity. So he could turn it around. You just said that. He has, it's possible for him to do that. Okay. Is that something that you want to experience with him? Absolutely. I'm that way with everyone. It's always possible for all of us to turn it around. I have an endless sieve of hope and redemption for everyone. My mom, in the end, turned it around for me. I was saying I never admired her more than when she was fighting to stay here for us. Okay. So I'm curious about the first step, the potential first step. And I'm curious from this frame. Yes, you walk in, the apartment is, I'll use the word catastrophe. And not just the way it looks, but I guess there's a certain odor to it. There's a certain health concern. There's, so yeah. There's rodents and roaches and yeah, everything. Yeah. Just so I understand, talk to me. So you walk into this environment. What do you see? And what do you feel when you see it? I like challenges. I can fix this. I couldn't fix my family. I couldn't bring my brother back, but I can fix this. I love it because there's a lot of opportunities that continuously emerge in this conversation. And you said language is powerful. I like challenges, what I heard. I couldn't fix my family. This is the next thing I heard. But I like challenges. But your family, how about we not worry about fixing them? How about that? Let's not be concerned with fixing them. Before I go forward, I just want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. What do you hear me saying when I say you think about your family, you think about the idea that you love taking on challenges, especially helping people deal with overcoming trauma by helping them organize and get a sense of release in their environment, a sense of release in their body. Okay, but we're not trying to fix the family in this challenge you taking on this challenge. I'm asking you to focus on that connection, love, above all, for 
your family, of course, but more specifically, your father. Not trying to fix him, but allowing yourself to be elevated. Allowing yourself to go to a deeper level of healing. Because you see that person inside of you who is capable of forgiving the monster. Not forgetting, but forgiving. Because that monster was born into something and created by something that allowed it to emerge and behave and be very destructive. Absolutely. But it's not about him. It's about something inside of you. That six-year-old girl, that seven-year-old girl. The capacity to still use love as your guiding mechanism with your father. And not just the, the shadow, not just the superficial part of your father, but the monster inside your father. I'm curious about that. It is a lot. <laughs> like you said, you like complex challenges. So it's not forgiveness. It's self-love. To operate in a world with certain people, I feel I have to change the essence or core of how I maneuver. I have to, you know, you talk about this, your personas with different people. With Around my dad, you have to be a persona that I don't want to be anymore. You have to be on guard. Take a pause for a second. Okay. Again, more opportunities emerging. I wanted to ask what's the first step, but I want to make sure we see exactly what the challenge is. Because the challenge was, yeah, let's help the monster. Now we recognize the challenge is self-love. So this is a big deal. When you're dealing with a narcissist, it's a type of persona that you cannot understand really unless you come in contact with it. They're extremely toxic, extremely destructive. Yeah, I love it. So for our work, can we agree the challenge is not the narcissist? The challenge is that person inside of Bonnie who was like, I can't deal with narcissists. Can we agree on that? Your father, I never met him. Let him be who he is. I'm curious about Bonnie inside who was like, you know what? Yep, all the statistics, all the facts, we can accept all of it. Culture, you know, socialization, all that stuff. We can accept all of it. And at the end of the day, internal silence, connecting, safety, and love, muting the noise. Let's just take a pause with that. All of it is valid. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I hope I'm not coming across like that. I'm saying it happened. I'm saying it was terrible. I'm also saying, how can we work together to create that beautiful connection of silence where safety meets love unconditionally? What do you hear me saying? I hear you saying that I need to create peace with this for me, for myself. It's not about the person. It's about me. It's about how I carry it. I just want to reframe something. So we're kind of equalizing. We're kind of purifying our way towards silence. And the word need, I need to, it's going to make it harder to purify towards silence. Okay? There's an opportunity to explore something inside of you that can sit in safety and love with all the noise around her. But you don't need to emerge. You don't need to have that person emerge. There's an opportunity to sit with her. There's an opportunity to practice silence with her. What are you taking away from all this stuff? I'm taking away that there's always work to do. Always. When you get to, to the place where you think, ah, oh, I got it. There'll be another layer. 
and accepting those layers because that's the journey. Oh, I'm going to ask you to reframe that too. We can accept. Let's agree that that's a baseline acceptance. Okay. And let's agree, especially when you are in your silence and your love and connected, that baseline of acceptance, that's low hanging fruit for you. You got that. You can do that in one breath. Now, after we have that foundation, what can emerge? What's something more elevated than acceptance with the new challenges that continually emerge? Well, I think I remember a phrase you said to me when I was fighting something with myself. You said, you accept things, you just don't like them, you know, and stuck in my head. So I think it's knowing that, yeah, it's okay to just accept something that you don't like. And to, I guess you're kind of trying to say to me, you might not like these things about your father, but when you put up walls, deliberate walls to protect yourself, they also keep yourself locked in. Oh, yeah. So that's really integrating the thoughts. In your own approach towards protection, you build this boundary around yourself. And in that moment, a lot of your clients who can be framed as hoarders, you're representing their life. You're representing their approach. And what I'm saying is you step out of that, allow yourself to be the practitioner. Okay, you're the expert. And you walk in and you see rodents and there's health concerns and there's odor and there's clutter all over the place. You might not like it initially, but there's something inside of you that is guided by love. And you connect to that person. And initially, like, get out of here. I don't want you around me. And there's something inside of you that still shows up and handles the job. And not only just organizing their space, but there's something that happens deeper for your clients. Is that fair to say? What happens at a deeper level for your clients? Feel loved and cared for. Yeah. And again, this is just me being with you. This is not a challenge. Your father feeling loved. How often do you believe? He had that experience of feeling loved. Not very often at all. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it could be a simple meditation. We can work on that. It could be you're a writer, you're a beautiful writer. We can write poems and stories and we can do a lot of stuff to begin that process. If we choose to see and feel your father being loved and watch what happens to him and you as a writer can decide whatever happens to him or somebody like him. Fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. You want to give that a shot? Absolutely. Absolutely. Working with Bonnie, one of the things that came to my mind that I felt was important was this idea of internal silence. She started with that. Peace while in solitude. I know a lot of people who are not able to find peace in solitude. And for Bonnie, that's protection, that's safety, that's creating boundaries. Even in the middle of social engagement with her family as a seven-year-old, she found a way to tap into internal silence, essentially muting all the noise, allowing her to connect with her spiritual self, allowing her to connect to her soul. And one of the beautiful things that emerged from this lens, this muting of noise realization, it amplifies 
the voice that's inside of her that talks about extreme levels of love, unconditional love, like powerful love. It amplifies the whispering voice of her brother that passed away over a decade ago, that voice that guides her. It helps to remind her when she's practicing silence that she has a beautiful agreement, a soulful agreement with her brother. Second big realization for me during the episode is because she knows she can tap into the wisdom of her brother guiding her in silence, she can begin to heal herself physically. She can begin to process depressive thoughts, depressive sensations. She can analyze and appreciate when her body is breaking down, when she's really feeling a lack of vitality, when all the way down to the cellular level, she is not operating at a high level. And she's able to realize that she is a woman who has experienced layers and layers of subtle trauma. My third major realization is this idea of systemic trauma, a system of trauma, essentially a legacy. It's ingrained in culture. It's ingrained in family, the relationship between her and her father, her father and his parents, grandparents, lineage. And at the end of the day, if we allow it, it can really be a story of being truly disadvantaged. She has every opportunity to switch the entire narrative by first healing herself with simple meditations and embodying those meditations, start to create loving experiences for her father and then let it trickle out through her lineage. I'm Esquire Wilson and you've been listening to The Self-Awakened Lifestyle. You can find out more about me at theselfawakenedlifestyle.com. I'd like to thank Bonnie for coming to the show today. The Self-Awakened Lifestyle is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes shows like Soul Savvy Business and To Lead is Human. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Melissa Deal assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer and post-production was by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review. It really does help us out. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.